This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, Winter 2006. Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe Chapter 3 Wrecked on a Desert Island After this stop, we made on to the southward continually for ten or twelve days, living very sparingly on our provisions, which began to abate very much, and going no oftener to the shore than we were obliged to for fresh water. My design in this was to make the river Gambia or Senegal, that is to say, anywhere about the Cape de Verde, where I was in hopes to meet with some European ship, and if I did not, I knew not what course I had to take, but to seek for the islands, or perish there among the Negroes. I knew that all the ships from Europe, which sailed either to the coast of Guinea or to Brazil, or to the East Indies, made this cape, or those islands, and, in a word, I put the whole of my fortune upon this single point, either that I must meet with some ship, or must perish. When I had pursued this resolution about ten days longer, as I have said, I began to see that the land was inhabited, and in two or three places, as we sailed by, we saw people stand upon the shore to look at us. We could also perceive that they were quite black and naked. I was once inclined to have gone on shore to them, but Shuri was my better counsellor, and said to me, No go, no go. However, I hauled in nearer the shore than I might to talk to them, and I found that they ran along the shore by me a good way. I observed that they had no weapons in their hand except one, which had a long, slender stick, which Shuri said was a lance, and that they could target them a great way with good aim. So I kept at a distance, but talked with them by signs as well as I could, and particularly made signs for something to eat. They beckoned me, stop my boat, and they would fetch me some meat. Upon this I lowered the top of my sail, and lay by, and two of them ran up into the country, and in less than half an hour came back, and brought with them two pieces of dried flesh and some corn, such as is the produce of their country. But we neither knew what the one or the other was. However, we were willing to accept it, but how to come at it was our next dispute, for I would not venture on shore to them, and they were as much afraid of us. But they took a safe way for us all, for they brought it to the shore, and laid it down, and went and stood a great way off, till we fetched it on board, and then came close to us again. We made signs of thanks to them, for we had nothing to make them amends. But an opportunity offered, that very instant, to oblige them wonderfully, for while we were lying, by the shore came two mighty creatures, one pursuing the other, as we took it, with great fury, from the mountains towards the sea. 
whether it was the male pursuing the female, or whether they were in sport or in rage, we could not tell any more than we could tell whether it was usual or strange. But I believe it was the latter, because, in the first place, those ravenous creatures seldom appear but in the night, and in the second place we found the people terribly frighted, especially the women. The man that had the lance or dart did not fly from them, but the rest did. However, as the two creatures ran directly into the water, they did not offer to fall upon any of the negroes, but plunged themselves into the sea and swam about, as if they had come there for diversion. At last one of them began to come nearer our boat than at first I expected, but I lay ready for him, for I had loaded the, my gun with all possible expedition, and bade Shuri load both the others. As soon as he came fairly within my reach, I fired, and shot him directly in the head. Immediately he sank down into the water, but rose instantly, and plunged up and down as if he were struggling for life, and so indeed he was. He immediately made to the shore, but between the wound, which was his mortal hurt, and the strangling of the water, he died just before he reached the shore. It is impossible to express the astonishment of these poor creatures at the noise and fire of my gun. Some of them were even ready to die for fear, and fell down as dead with the very terror. And when they saw the creature dead, and sunk in the water, and that I made signs to them to come to the shore, they took heart, and came, and began to search for the creature. I found him by his blood, staining the water. And by the help of a rope which I slung round him, and gave the negroes to haul, they dragged him on shore, and found that it was a most curious leopard, spotted and fine to an admirable degree. And the negroes held up their hands with admiration, to think what it was I had killed him with. The other creature, frighted with the flash of fire and the noise of the gun, swam on shore and ran up directly to the mountains from whence they came. Nor could I, at that distance, know what it was. I found quickly the negroes wished to eat the flesh of this creature, so I was willing to have them take it as a favor from me, which, when I made signs to them that they might take him, they were very thankful for. Immediately they fell to work with him, and though they had no knife, yet with a sharpened piece of wood, they took off his skin as readily, and much more readily, than we could have done with a knife. They offered me some of the flesh which I declined, pointing out that I would give it to them, but made signs for the skin, which they gave me very freely, and brought me a great deal more of their provisions, which, though I did not understand, yet I accepted. I then made signs to them for some water, and held out one of the jars to them, turning the bottom upward to show that it was empty, and that I wanted to have it filled. They immediately called to some of their friends, and there came two women, and brought a great vessel made of earth, and burnt, as I supposed, in the sun. This they set down to me, as before, and I sent Shuri on, sh on, on shore with my jars, and filled them all three. The women were as naked as the men. I was now furnished with roots and corn, such as it was, and water, and leaving my friendly negroes, I made forward for about eleven days more, without offering to go near the shore, till I saw the land run out a great length into the sea, 
at about the distance of four or five leagues before me, and the sea being very calm, I kept a large offing to make this point. At length, doubling the point, at about two leagues from the land, I saw plainly land on the other side, to seaward. Then I concluded, as it was most certain indeed, that this was the Cape de Verde, and those the islands called, from thence, Cape de Verde Islands. However, they were at a great distance, and I could not tell well what I had best to do. For if I should be taken with the fresh of wind, I might neither reach one or other. In this dilemma, as I was very pensive, I stepped into the cabin and sat down, Shuri having the helm, when on a sudden the boy cried out, Master! Master, a ship with a sail! And the foolish boy was frighted out of his wits, thinking it must be some of his master's ships sent to pursue us. But I knew we were far enough out of their reach. I jumped out of the cabin and immediately saw not only the ship, but that it was a Portuguese ship, and, as I thought, was bound to the coast of Guinea, for Negroes. But when I observed the course she steered, I was soon convinced they were bound some other way, and did not design to come any nearer to the shore, upon which I stretched out to sea as much as I could, resolving to speak with them if possible. With all the sail I could make, I found I should not be able to come in their way, but that they would be gone by before I could make any signal to them. But after I had crowded to the utmost, and began to despair, they, it seems, saw by the help of their glasses that it was some European boat, which they supposed must belong to some ship that was lost. So they shortened sail to, to let me come up. I was encouraged with this, and as I had my patron's ancient on board, I made a waft of it to them, for a signal of distress, and fired a gun, both which they saw. For they told me they saw the smoke, though they did not hear the gun. Upon these signals they very kindly brought to and lay by for me, and in about three hours' time I came up with them. They asked me what I was in Portuguese, and in Spanish, and in French, but I understood none of them. But at last a Scotch sailor, who was on board, called to me, and I answered him, and told him I was an Englishman, that I had made my escape out of slavery from the Moors at Salih. They then bade me come on board, and very kindly took me in, and all my goods. It was an inexpressible joy to me, which any one will believe, that I was thus delivered, as I esteemed it, from such a miserable and hopeless condition as I was in. And I immediately offered all I had to the captain of the ship, as a return for my deliverance. But he generously told me he would take nothing from me, but that all I had should be delivered safe to me when I came to the Brazils. For, says he, I have saved your life on no other terms than I would be glad to be saved myself, and it may one time or other be my lot to be taken up in the same condition. Besides, said he, when I carry you to the Brazils, so great away from your own country, if I should take from you what you have, you will be starved there, and then I only take away that life I have given. No, no, says he, Senor Inglese, Mr. Englishman, I will carry you thither in charity, and those things which help to buy your subsistence there, 
and your passage home again. As he was charitable in his proposal, so he was just in the performance to a tittle. For he ordered the seaman that none should touch anything that I had. Then he took everything into his own possession and gave me back an exact inventory of them, that I might have them even to my three earthen jars. As to my boat, it was a very good one, and that he saw, and told me he would buy it of me for his ship's use, and asked me what I would have for it. I told him he had been so generous to me in everything that I could not offer to make any price of the boat, but left it entirely to him, upon which he told me he would give me a note of hand to pay me eighty pieces of eight for it at Brazil. And when it came there, if any one offered to give more, he would make it up. He offered me also sixty pieces of eight more for my boy Shuri, which I was loath to take. Not that I was unwilling to let the captain have him, but I was very loath to sell the poor boy's liberty who had assisted me so faithfully in procuring my own. However, when I let him know my reason, he owned it to be just, and offered me this medium that he would give the boy an obligation to set him free in ten years, if he turned Christian. Upon this, and Shuri saying he was willing to go with him, I let the captain have him. We had a very good voyage to the Brazils, and I arrived in the Bay de Todos los Santos, or All Saints Bay, in about twenty-two days after. And now I was once again delivered from the most miserable of all conditions of life. And what to do next with myself, I was to consider. The generous treatment the captain gave me, I can never enough remember. He would take nothing of me for my passage, gave me twenty ducats for the leopard skin, and forty for the lion skin, which I had in my boat, and caused everything I had in the ship to be punctually delivered to me. And what I was willing to sell, he bought of me, such as the case of bottles, two of my guns, and a piece of the lump of beeswax, for I had made candles of the rest. In a word, I made about two hundred and twenty pieces of eight of all my cargo, and with this stock I went on shore in the Brazils. I had not been long here before I was recommended to the house of a good honest man like himself, who had an ingenio, as they call it, that is, a plantation and a sugar house. I lived with him some time, and acquainted myself by that means with the manner of planting and making of sugar, and seeing how well the planters lived, and how they got rich suddenly, I resolved, if I could get a license to settle there, I would turn planter among them, resolving in the meantime to find out some way to get my money, which I had left in London, remitted to me. To this purpose, getting a kind of letter of naturalization, I purchased as much land that was uncured as my money would reach, and formed a plan for my plantation and settlement, such a one as might be suitable to the stock which I proposed to myself to receive from England. I had a neighbor, a Portuguese of Lisbon, but born of English parents, whose name was Wells, and in much such circumstances as I was. I called him my neighbor because his plantation lay next to mine, and as we went on very sociably together. My stock was but low, 
as well as his, and we rather planted for food than anything else for about two years. However, we began to increase, and our land began to come into order, so that the third year we planted some tobacco, and made each of us a large piece of ground, ready for planting canes in the year to come. But we both wanted help, and now I found, more than before, I had done wrong in parting with my boy Shuri. But, alas, for me to do wrong, that never did right, was no great wonder. I hail no remedy, but to go on. I had got into an employment quite remote to my genius, and directly contrary to the life I delighted in, and for which I forsook my father's house, and broke through all his good advice. Nay, I was coming into the very middle station, or upper degree of low life, which my father advised me to before and which, if I resolved to go on with, I might as well have stayed at home, and never have fatigued myself in the world as I had done. And I used often to say to myself, I could have done this as well in England, among my friends, as I have gone five thousand miles off to do it among strangers and savages in a wilderness, and at such a distance as never to hear from any part of the world that had the least knowledge of me. In this manner I used to look upon my condition with the utmost regret. I had nobody to converse with, but now and then this neighbor. No work to be done, but by the labor of my hands. And I used to say, I lived just like a man cast away upon some desolate island that had nobody there but himself. But how just has it been, and how should all men reflect that when they compare their present conditions with others that are worse, heaven may oblige them to make the exchange, and be convinced of their former felicity by their experience. I say, how just has it been that the true solitary life I reflected on in an island of mere desolation should be my lot, who had so often unjustly compared it with the life which I then led, in which, had I continued, I had in all probability been exceeding prosperous and rich. I was in some degree settled in my measures for carrying on the plantation, before my kind friend, the captain of the, of the ship that took me up at sea, went back. For the ship remained there, in providing his lading, and preparing for his voyage in nearly three months. When telling him what little stock I had left behind me in London, he gave me this friendly and sincere advice. Señor Inglese, says he, for so he always called me, if you will give me letters and a procuration in form to me, with orders to the person who has your money in London to send your effects to Lisbon, to such persons as I shall direct and in such goods as are proper for this country, I will bring you the produce of them, God willing, at my return. But since human affairs are all subject to changes and disasters, I would have you give orders, but for one hundred pounds sterling, which, you say, is half your stock, and let the hazard be run for the first, so that, if it comes safe, you may order the rest the same way, and if it miscarry, you may have the other half to have recourse to for your supply. 
This was so wholesome advice, and looked so friendly, that I could not but be convinced it was the best course I could take. So I accordingly prepared letters to the gentlewoman with whom I had left my money, and a procuration to the Portuguese captain, as he desired. I wrote the English captain's widow a full account of all my adventures, my slavery, escape, and how I had met with the Portuguese captain at sea, and the humanity of his behavior, and what condition I was now in, with all other necessary directions for my supply. And when this honest captain came to Lisbon, he found means, by some English merchants there, to send over, not the order only, but a full account of my story to a merchant in London, who represented it effectually to her, whereupon she not only delivered the money, but out of her own pocket, sent the Portugal captain a very handsome present for his humanity and charity to me. The merchant in London, vesting this hundred pounds in English goods, such as the captain had written for, sent them directly to him at Lisbon, and he brought them all safe to me to the Brazils, among which, without my direction, for I was too young in my business to think of them, he had taken care to have all sorts of tools, ironwork, and utensils necessary for my plantation, and which were of great use to me. When this cargo arrived, I thought my fortune made, for I was surprised with the joy of it, and my stood steward, the captain, had laid out the five pounds which my friend had sent him for present for himself, to purchase and bring me over a servant, under bond for six years' service, and would not accept of any consideration except a little tobacco, which I would have him accept, being of my own produce. Neither was this all. All my goods being all English manufacture, such as cloths, stuffs, bays, and things particularly valuable and desirable in the country, I found means to sell them to a very great advantage, so that, I might say, I had more than four times the value of my first cargo, and was now infinitely beyond my poor neighbor, I mean in the advancement of my plantation, for the first thing I did, I bought me a negro slave, and an European servant also, I mean another one besides that which the captain brought me from Lisbon. But as abused prosperity is sometimes made the very means of our greatest adversity, so it was with me. I went on the next year with great success in my plantation. I raised fifty great rolls of tobacco on my own ground, more than I had disposed of for necessaries among my neighbors, and these fifty rolls, being each of above a hundred weight, were well cured, and laid by against the return of the fleet from Lisbon. And now increasing in business and wealth, my head began to be full of prospects and undertakings beyond my reach, such as are indeed often the ruin of the best heads in business. Had I continued in the station I was now in, I had room for all the happy things to have yet befallen me, for which my father so earnestly recommended a quiet, retired life, and of which he had so sensibly described the middle station of life to be full of. But other things attended me, and I was still to be the willful agent of all my own miseries, and particularly to increase my fault and double the reflections upon myself, 
which in my future sorrows I should have leisure to make, all these miscarriages were procured by my apparent obstinance adhering to my foolish inclination of wandering about, and pursuing that inclination, in contradiction to the clearest views of doing myself good in a fair and plain pursuit of those prospects, and those measures of life, which nature and providence concurred to present me with, and to make my duty. As I had once done, thus in my breaking away from my parents, so I could not be content now, but I must go and leave the happy view I had of being a rich and thriving man in my new plantation, only to pursue a rash and immoderate desire of rising faster than the nature of the thing admitted. And thus I cast myself down again into the deepest gulf of human misery that ever man fell into, or perhaps could be consistent with life in a state of health in the world. To come then, by the just degrees, to the particulars of this part of my story. You may suppose that having now lived almost four years in the Brazils, and beginning to thrive and prosper very well upon my plantation, I had not only learned the language, but had contracted acquaintance and friendship among my fellow planters, well as among the merchants of St. Salvador, which was our port, and that, in my discourses among them, I had frequently given them an account of my two voyages to the coast of Guinea, the manner of trading with the negroes there, and how easy it was to purchase upon the coast for trifles, such as beads, toys, knives, scissors, hatchets, bits of glass, and the like, not only gold dust, guinea grains, elephant teeth, etc., but negroes, for the service of the Brazils, in great numbers. They listened always very attentively to my discourses on these heads, but especially to that part which related to the buying of negroes, which was a trade at that time, not only not far entered into, but, as far as it was, had been carried on by asientos, or permission of the kings of Spain and Portugal, and engrossed in the public stock, so that few negroes were bought, and these excessively dear. It happened, being in company with some merchants and planters of my acquaintance, and talking of those things very earnestly, three of them came to me next morning, and told me they had been musing very much upon what I had discoursed with them of the last night, and they came to make a secret proposal to me, and after enjoining me to secrecy, they told me they had a mind to fit out a ship to go to Guinea, that they had all plantations as well as I, and were straitened for nothing so much as servants, that, as it was a trade that could not be carried on, because they could not publicly sell the negroes when they came home, so they desired to make but one voyage to bring the negroes on shore privately, and divide them among their own plantations, and, in a word, the question was whether I would go their supercargo in the ship to manage the trading part upon the coast of Guinea, and they offered me that I should have my equal share of the negroes without providing any part of the stock. 
This was a fair proposal, it must be confessed, had it been made to any one that had not had a settlement and a plantation of his own to look after, which was in a fair way of coming to be very considerable, and with a good stock upon it. But for me, that was thus entered and established, and had nothing to do but to go on as I had begun for three or four more years, and to have sent for the other hundred pounds from England, and who, in that time, and with that little addition, could scarce have failed of being worth three or four thousand pounds sterling, and that increasing, too. For me to think of such a voyage was the most preposterous thing that ever man in such circumstances could be guilty of. But I, that was born to be my own destroyer, could no more resist the offer than I could restrain my first rambling designs when my father's good counsel was lost upon me. In a word, I told them I would go with all my heart if they would undertake to look after my plantation in my absence and would dispose of it such as I should direct if I miscarried. This they all engaged to do and entered into writings or covenants to do so and I made a formal will disposing of my plantation and effects in case of my death, making the captain of the ship that had saved my life, as before, my universal heir, but obliging him to dispose of my effects as I had directed in my will, one half of the produce being to himself, and the other to be shipped to England. In short, I took all possible caution to preserve my effects and to keep up my plantation, had I used half as much prudence to have looked into my own interest, and have made a judgment of what I ought to have done, and not to have done, I had certainly never gone away from so prosperous an undertaking, leaving all the probable views of a thriving circumstance, and gone upon a voyage to sea, attended with all its common hazards, to say nothing of the reasons I had to expect particular misfortunes to myself. But I was hurried on, and obeyed blindly the dictates of my fancy rather than my reason, and accordingly, the ship being fitted out, and the cargo furnished, and all things done as by agreement, by my partners in the voyage, I went on board in an evil hour, the first September, 1659, being the same day eight years that I went from my father and mother at Hull, in order to act the rebel to their authority and the fool to my own interests. Our ship was about 120 tons burden, carried six guns and 14 men, besides the master, his boy, and myself. We had on board no large cargo of goods, except of such toys as were fit for trade with the negroes, such as beads, bits of glass, shells, and other trifles, especially little looking-glasses, knives, scissors, hatchets, and the like. The same day I went on board, we set sail, standing away to the northward upon our own coast, with design to stretch over for the African coast, when we came about ten or twelve degrees of northern latitude which, it seems, was the manner of course in those days. We had very good weather, only excessively hot, all the way upon our own coast, till we came to the height of Cape San Augustino. From whence, keeping further off at sea, 
we lost sight of land and steered as if we were bound for the isle Fernando de Neronha, holding our course northeast by north, and leaving those isles on the east. In this course we passed the line in about twelve days' time, and were, by our last observation, in seven degrees twenty-two minutes northern latitude, when a violent tornado or hurricane took us quite out of our knowledge. It began from the southeast, came about to the northwest, and then settled in the northeast, from whence it blew in such a terrible manner that for twelve days together we could do nothing but drive, and, scudding away before it, let it carry us whither fate and the fury of the winds directed. And during these twelve days I need not say that I expected every day to be swallowed up, nor indeed did any in the ship expect to save their lives. In this distress we had, besides the terror of the storm, one of our men die of the calenture, and one man and the boy washed overboard. About the twelfth day, the weather abating a little, the master made an observation as well as he could, and found that he was in about eleven degrees north latitude, but that he was twenty-two degrees of longitude difference west from Cape St. Augustino, so that he found he was upon the coast of Guiana, or the north part of Brazil, beyond the river Amazon, toward that of the river Orinoco, commonly called the Great River, and began to consult with me what course he should take, for the ship was leaky and very much disabled, and he was going directly back to the coast of, of Brazil. I was positively against that, and looking over the charts of the sea-coast of America with him, we concluded there was no inhabited country for us to have recourse to till we came within the circle of the Caribbean Islands, and therefore resolved to stand away for Barbados, which, by keeping off at sea, to avoid the draft of the bay or Gulf of Mexico, we might easily perform, as we hoped, in about fifteen days' sail whereas we could not possibly make our voyage to the coast of Africa without some assistance, both to our ship and to ourselves. With this design we changed our course, and steered away northwest by west, in order to reach some of our English islands, where I hoped for relief. But our voyage was otherwise determined, for being in the latitude of twelve degrees eighteen minutes, a second storm came upon us, which carried us away with the same impetuosity westward, and drove us so out of the way of all human commerce, that had all our lives been saved as to the sea, we were rather in danger of being devoured by savages than ever returning to our own country. In this distress, the wind still blowing very hard, one of our men early in the morning cried out, Land! And we had no sooner run out of the cabin to look out, and in hopes of seeing whereabouts in the world we were, then the ship struck upon a sand, and in a moment, her motion being so stopped, the sea broke over her in such a manner that we expected we should all have perished immediately, and we were immediately driven to our close quarters to shelter us from the very foam and spray of the sea. It is not easy for any one 
who has not been in the like condition to describe or conceive the consternation of men in such circumstances. We knew nothing where we were, or upon what land it was we were driven, whether an island or the main, whether inhabited or not inhabited. As the rage of the wind was still great, though rather less than at first, we could not so much as hope to have the ship hold many minutes without breaking into pieces, unless the winds, by a kind of miracle, should turn immediately about. In a word, we sat looking upon one another, and expecting death every moment, and every man accordingly preparing for another world, for there was little or nothing more for us to do in this. That which was our present comfort, and all the comfort we had, was that, contrary to our expectation, the ship did not break yet, and that, the master said, the wind began to abate. Now, though we thought that the wind did a little abate, yet the ship having thus struck upon the sand, and striking too fast, and sticking, for us to expect her getting off, we were in a dreadful condition indeed, and had nothing to do but to think of saving our lives as well as we could. We had a boat at our stern just before the storm, but she was first staved by dashing against the ship's rudder, and in the second place she broke away, and either sunk or was driven off to sea, so there was no hope from her. We had another boat on board, but how to get her off into the sea was a doubtful thing. However, there was no time to debate, for we fancied that the ship would break in pieces every minute, and some told us she was actually broken already. In this distress the mate of our vessel laid hold of the boat, and with the help of the rest of the men got her slung over the ship's side, and getting all into her, let go, and committed ourselves, being eleven in number, to God's mercy and the wild sea. And though the storm was abated considerably, yet the sea ran dreadfully high upon the shore, and might be well called Den Zee, as the Dutch called the sea in a storm. And now our case was very dismal indeed, for we all saw plainly that the sea went so high that the boat could not live, and that we should be inevitably drowned. As to making sail, we had none nor, if we had, could we have done anything with it. So we worked at the oar towards the land, though with heavy hearts, like men going to execution, for we all knew that when the boat came near the shore she would be dashed in a thousand pieces by the breach of the sea. However, we committed our souls to God in the most earnest manner, and the wind driving us towards the shore, we hastened our destruction with our own hands pulling as well as we could towards land. What the shore was, whether rock or sand, whether steep or shoal, we knew not. The only hope that could rationally give us at least some shadow of expectation was if we might find some bay or gulf or the mouth of some river where, by great chance, we might have run our boat in or got under the lee of the land and perhaps made smooth water. But there was nothing like this appeared. But as we made nearer and nearer the shore, the land looked more frightful than the sea. After we had rowed, or rather driven, about a league and a half, as we reckoned it, 
a raging wave, mountain-like, came rolling astern of us, and plainly bade us expect the coup de grace. It took us with such a fury that it overset the boat at once, and separating us as well from the boat as from one another, gave us no time to say, O oh God, for we were all swallowed up in a moment. Nothing can describe the confusion of thought which I felt when I sank into the water. For though I swam very well, yet I could not deliver myself from the waves so as to draw a breath, till that wave having driven me, or rather carried me, a vast way on towards the shore, and having spent itself, went back, and left me upon the land almost dry, but half dead with the water I took in. I had so much presence of mind, as well as breath left, that seeing myself nearer the mainland than I expected, I got upon my feet, and endeavored to make on towards the land as fast as I could before another wave should return and take me up again. But I soon found it was impossible to avoid it, for I saw the sea come after me as high as a great hill, and as furious as an enemy which I had no means or strength to contend with. My business was to hold my breath and raise myself upon the water if I could, and so by swimming to preserve my breathing and pilot myself towards the shore if possible. My greatest concern now being that the sea, as it would carry me a great way towards the shore when it came on, might not carry me back again with it when it gave back towards the sea. The wave that came upon me again buried me at once twenty or thirty feet deep in its own body, and I could feel myself carried with a mighty force and swiftness towards the shore a very great way. But I held my breath and assisted myself to swim still forward with all my might. I was ready to burst with holding my breath, when, as I felt myself rising up, so, to my immediate relief, I found my head and hands shoot out of the surface of the water, and though it was not two seconds of time that I could keep myself so, yet it relieved me greatly, gave me breath and new courage. I was covered again with water a good while, but not so long, but I held it out, and finding the water had spent itself and began to return, I struck forward against the return of the waves, and felt ground again with my feet. I stood still a few moments to recover breath, and till the waters went from me, and then took to my heels and ran with what strength I had further towards the, the shore. But neither would this deliver me from the fury of the sea, which came pouring in after me, and twice more I was lifted up by the, by the waves and carried forward as before, the shore being very flat. The last time of these two had well nigh been fatal to me, for the sea having hurried me along as before landed me, or rather dashed me, against a piece of rock, and that with such force that it left me senseless and indeed helpless as to my own deliverance. For the blow taking my side and breast beat the breath as it were quite out of my body, and had it returned again immediately I must have been strangled in the water. But I recovered a little before the return of the waves, and seeing I should be covered again with the water, I resolved to hold fast by a piece of the rock, and so to hold my breath, if possible, till the wave went back. Now, as the waves were not so high as at first, being nearer land, I held my hold till the wave abated, and then fetched another run, 
which brought me so near the shore that the next wave, though it went over me, yet did not so swallow me up as to carry me away. And the next run I took, I got to the mainland, where, to my great comfort, I clambered up the cliffs of the shore, and sat me down upon the grass free from danger, and I was now landed, and safe on shore, and began to look up, and thank God that my life was saved. In a case wherein there was some minutes before scarce any room to hope. I believe it is impossible to express to the life what the ecstasies and transports of the soul are, when it is so saved, as I might say, out of the very grave. I do not wonder now at the custom when a malefactor who has the halter around his neck is tied up and just going to be turned off, and has a reprieve brought to him. I say, I do not wonder that they bring a surgeon with it, to let him blood that very moment they tell him of it, that the surprise may not drive the animal spirits from the heart and overwhelm him. For sudden joys like griefs confound at first. I walked about on the shore, lifting up my hands and my whole being, as I may say, wrapped up in a contemplation of my deliverance, making a thousand gestures and motions which I cannot describe, reflecting upon all my comrades that were drowned, and that there should be not one soul saved but myself. For, as for them, I never saw them afterwards, or any sign of them, except three of their hats, one cap, and two shoes that were not fellows. I cast my eye to the stranded vessel, when the breach and froth of the sea being so big I could hardly see it, it lay so far off, and considered, Lord, how was it possible I could get on shore? After I had solaced my mind with the comfortable part of my condition, I began to look around me, to see what kind of place I was in, and what was next to be done, and I soon found my comforts abate, and that, in a word, I had a dreadful deliverance, for I was wet, had no clothes to shift me, nor anything either to eat or drink to comfort me, neither did I see any prospect before me but that of perishing with hunger or being devoured by wild beasts. And that which was particularly afflicting to me was that I had no weapon, either to hunt and kill any creature for my sustenance, or to defend myself against any other creature that might desire to kill me for theirs. In a word, I had nothing about me but a knife, a tobacco pipe, and a little tobacco in a box, this was all my provisions, and this threw me into such terrible agonies of mind that, for a while, I ran about like a madman. Night coming upon me, I began with a heavy heart to consider what would be my lot if there were any ravenous beasts in that country, as at night they always come abroad for their prey. All the remedy that offered to my thoughts at that time was to get up into a thick bushy tree like a fir, but thorny, which grew near me, and where I resolved to sit all night, and consider the next day what death I should die, for as yet I saw no prospect of life. 
I walked about a furlong from the shore to see if I could find any fresh water to drink, which I did, to my great joy. And having drank, and put a little tobacco into my mouth to prevent hunger, I went to the tree, and getting up into it, endeavored to place myself so that, if I should sleep, I might not fall. And having cut me a short stick, like a truncheon, for my defense, I took up my lodging, and having been excessively fatigued, I fell fast asleep, and slept as comfortably as, I believe, few could have done in my condition, and found myself more refreshed with it than, I think, I ever was on such an occasion. End of chapter 3